So normally we have like a little like pass the peace chatty saying hello thing, but we're stamping down on that today. We've had enough community and connection. I'd rather an autocracy. You can say hi to the people at your table if you haven't said hi yet. If you already have and that's awkward, then just stare straight forward at me. Try not to acknowledge them. The tension in the room is rising. Um, <coughs> my name is Shane, and my pronouns are he, him. Uh, we, on the first Sunday every month, we try and have like a shorter service uh, so that we can eat um, snacks and baking and things. Baking and pseudo-baking, known as Peter Monty's baking. Um, and so for this one, for some wild reason, we thought, hey, let's introduce our new, service, our new series on the first one, um, and let's get Shane to do it, because he's really good at keeping things short. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. My challenge with uh, talking about new series is there's some part of my brain which wants to say everything that I've ever thought about the subject, so I'm going to try really hard not to do that this morning, but it'll help us because it's actually a continuation of a series that we've um, already started, which is um, we talked about wisdom. Got to replace that big metal bucket for a plastic one, I tell myself every week. Um, <laughs> it's on my to-do list, so it's only my own fault. Um, we uh, spent a little bit of the last few weeks talking about um, the wisdom books in the Hebrew Scriptures. So we went through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, um, just some uplifting material there. Um, and yeah, we are segueing into um, this idea of another story, which is the way of Jesus as a wisdom tradition. And I even made a PowerPoint, so give me a clap. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't have many sources of self-esteem, so that's definitely one of them. There you go. Uh, and it's got Coptic iconography because I love Coptic iconography. Uh, so the name of the series came from um, a chat with my friend Frosty, who was over a little while ago, and he was describing their church and how they see church and some of the things they try and do there. And a little turn of phrase um, that he had was that they described their church as a place where um, he said, we, we try and be a place where people can come and just for a moment be immersed in another story. And I just thought it was a really beautiful expression of, um, of church as a gathering, of looking at an alternate narrative that we immerse ourselves in for a period of time that we hope transforms us and takes us into our everyday lives. Um, and it resonated with us because it's something that we've been talking about for a couple of years um, as a community about not just being a community of belief, but being a community of practice and ritual and wisdom. Uh, we, as humans, are constantly being shaped. We just don't always know that it's happening. Stories, and particularly stories about ourselves and others, become background scripts to our lives that shape everything we do but they're not necessarily things that we reflect on. They kind of become these scripts which run in the background um, about how we see ourselves and how we see the world. And um, unless we pay attention to them, they can like radically shape us, but we don't always know um, what they're telling us or we don't always acknowledge it. I have uh, been through the process of uh, trying to start and finish a very small thesis um, <laughs> over the last few years, which has been hijacked twice by uh, a combination of COVID and children pulling each other's hair out. Um, <laughs> so I've deferred it twice to do more parenting, 
which has been great, but I need to finish it at some stage. But that just means that I've sat with this idea for a long, 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 long time and way too long and bored many of you to death uh, when you, for some unknown reason, said, what's it about? <laughs> and then immediately regretted your decision as I waffled on and tried to find uh, the center of the thing. But part of that experience has, um, because of the topic, the topic is somewhat centered around my world in this community and then my world working in hospo and just kind of observing the lives of the inner north and observing my own life being a part of it, about the background scripts that run in our lives. Um, and I came across a um, couple of works, and um, I'll only talk about one of them today, but um, which just had a really, really good description of what my experience had been and what um, experiences that I'd had reflected back to me. And so I thought, hey, that'd make a great, like, something to dive into for a thesis. And one of the really interesting experiences with it is explaining it to people and watching us both kind of grapple with the narrative that you're describing because it's so intuitive and so innate that it's really hard to imagine any other way. Um, so I'll give it a crack, really briefly. One of the components is this idea called third order suffering. Um, and the coin was turned by this guy who's a therapist in the States called Bruce Rogers Vaughan. Um, and he experienced, doing kind of like 30, 35 years of therapy, experienced the way that people described their problems over time has changed. And he's seeing a really, really common pattern um, in how that's happening. And so he wrote a book off the back of these observations called um, Care, Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age. Um, so we're not going to get too deeply into the economics this morning because I can already see many of you checking out. Um, but basically he works in a um, North American context and has watched since the, since the 70s people working under um, hyper-aggressive capitalism. Um, and his theory is that it is changing the way in which we see ourselves and it's changing the way in which we manage suffering. Um, to, he describes a bunch of things in the book. Um, one of them is the breakdown of collectives, that communities of support, like support networks, particularly organized support networks since the 70s, statistically have gone down. So we're more disconnected in many ways. Churches, clubs, societies, guilds, neighborhood watch groups, um, informal neighborhood communities, anything that kind of like ties us to each other because of the way in which we're increasingly transient, which we move more, which our lives are more fluid. Um, and our prioritization of freedom and autonomy means that we're less connected to stuff um, that provide regular rhythms, but also just regular ways of being seen by other people. Um, he has observed that we live in an increasingly, increasingly fluid and stratified society. And that with he would say that the narrative of capitalism, which is that we are competing autonomous individuals um, who are all trying to work our way to the top, um, has become internalized, and that's kind of one of the major lenses through which we see ourselves. And that's led to an increasing value in freedom from obligation. If we want to be able to respond to the market, if we want to be able to pursue our dreams, if we want to be able to um, keep on moving upward in life and society, then having as few things tying us down as possible uh, is a really good way of doing that. Because anything that might um, that you might be obligated to, that might hold you back, that you might owe anyone, might stop your next big move. 
So what he sees as changing um, is this thing called third-order suffering. So first-order suffering, kind of classically, is kind of natural disasters and death and just stuff that happens in life that we have that is involved with nature and we have very little control over. Um, sickness, volcanoes, <laughs> floods, all those kind of things. Maybe we do have a bit more control over some of these things, but it's a whole other argument. <laughs> Second order suffering traditionally is relational stuff, the things that we do to each other, <laughs> um, the ways in which we either support or destroy each other. Um, he's added this idea of third order suffering, which his description of it is this, um, that we have internalized responsibility for all of our suffering. So there's a few ways of looking at that and a few descriptions of it, but one of the things he says that happens is that suffering or our own problems become something that our, it's our job to problem manage. So when something goes wrong in our life, it's our job to fix it and work our way out of it and gather the resources that we need to be able to find a solution for it. Now, the difficulty in explaining this to people is that that seems so obvious that it's really hard to even envisage an alternative to it. And so people are like, yeah, yeah, and what's the new bit? Um, like, what's the interesting piece of this? Like, yeah, I have a problem, and then I've got to try and solve it, and I've got to try and find help. And, blah, blah, blah. and so one of, the, one of the, like, after talking about this for a couple of years, one of the things I try and get people to do, which is always really fun at parties, is to close their eyes for a moment. And if you trust the people at your table enough not to touch you, <laughs> then you can do this. Um, and just try and imagine a world where you face some kind of hardship and the first human response to it is a bunch of other people saying, I see, or we see, that Anika is struggling. Where has this come from? What are the sources of that? What resources do we have? And what do we owe Anika to help solve this problem, to help alleviate the suffering? Who holds responsibility? What responsibility does Annika have in it? What responsibility do we? What responsibility does the systems and structures that we live in? What resources do we have? The idea that someone, I think the closest parallel for some of us might be that mum and dad might do this. But in terms of any other structures in our lives, we've kind of got like um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, May rest in peace used to describe this as kind of like the hollowing out of the center between the individual and the state. So there's like individual responsibility, and there's the government's responsibility, and in between that, there's like no one has any responsibility for anyone. Um, so that's another world. It's another story. Another way of seeing the world is that we are part of a living human web who are always responsible to, to each other in various ways, always connected, always committed to being connected to each other. That mutual obligation, while there's bad coercive forms of it, there's also really healthy forms of it that aren't necessarily bad and coercive. And that we all have a responsibility to the body, bodily and emotional and economic needs of each other. 
So Rogers Vaughan would say that third order suffering, the internal like the internalization of responsibility for our problems as autonomous individuals is another layer which goes on top. We already deal with first order suffering. We already deal with third order suffering. And just to like have a real kick, <laughs> suddenly we find ourselves dealing with the fact that we now have to fix all of our own problems by ourselves. And it's really hard to name, to even name some of the systems and structures behind that. Um, and just to help some of you, he's not arguing that there's no such thing as individual responsibility at all. But he's saying that the, like, <laughs> the pendulum has swung so far one way that now we spend our lives basically trying to like disentangle ourselves from owing anyone anything because we know at some point we're going to have to deal with our own stuff and we definitely don't want to be tied down to anyone else's. So what I'd say is that, why, why that long rambling tangent? is because we've got this background story about our lives and about our responsibility to the world that we carry with us that's like so obvious to us that we can't even conceive of another way of structuring the world. And the reason I want to write about that is because I think it's destroying us um, in so many ways. And I think that we need creative solutions to it because we can't just go back to ye olde days because our economic structures and society has changed. So we need new language around what it means to care for each other, what it means to be a part of the living human web. But I also kind of want to invite into the space the idea that the Jesus way has got resources and traditions and stories within it which might offer something to this landscape. Many of us were raised with a lens that Christianity was a belief system, that what mattered was working towards right belief and trying to bring our behavior in line with that. But too often this spiraled into endless arguments and divisions over semantics. We were convinced we were right about predestination as opposed to them over there. But that didn't necessarily make us kinder, healthier, more Jesus-y people. And this is not to disparage beliefs, because I believe that beliefs actually matter. But I think they don't necessarily, that nutting out our beliefs in isolation necessarily translate into the way that we live individually or corporately. I think that believing that God is good and, that, and believing that God loves all humans equally really matters. But I don't necessarily think that intellectually assenting to that necessarily changes how we feel or how we practice towards ourselves or our neighbors. And I think it came to a surprise for me when doing more study that Christianity as a rational, deductive belief system is a reasonably recent invention. Um, there's always been arguments about belief, like, you know, hence heresy trials. Um, but there's been huge swathes of the church as well that have found it more helpful to think of, belief, that, of, the, of the Jesus way as a wisdom tradition, a path of stories, wisdom, rituals, and practices that shape our time together and our everyday lives, that help us walk together into a new way of being. So I think our question for this series is, what happens when we gather around the stories and wisdom of Jesus and allow them to shape us? 
what happens when we participate in rituals and practices together, when we create new language, new rituals, new practices, when we draw on ancient wisdom and rituals and practices and let them shape our lives. That as a community, as we practice these things together, as we discuss this stuff together, as we sit and marinate in that wisdom together, what happens to the story of our lives in the way that we see each other? Early Christians were known as followers of the way. They were seen as dangerous because of their strange practices and the fact they gathered around the stories of a crucified, failed Messiah. One of the key concerns in Greco-Roman society was their strange meals, which were an affront to the system at large. All of Greco-Roman society hung together on a very, very strong, strict hierarchical system of order, of who owed who what. And changing places <laughs> um, was a threat to the structure. Christians practiced the strange meal where slaves and masters dined as equals and did this every week and sat next to each other. Meals were the number one kind of stratification of society. The rich and honorable ate first, and then the, the next ones, and the next ones, the next ones, right down to the slaves getting the scraps and then doing all the cleaning up while everyone else got to have an orgy. Um, the Christian church had this meal of equality in which everyone ate together and everyone was invited to the same table. And I just can't help but think about that meal and about that practice over and over and over again if you're a master sitting next to a slave, hearing their stories, asking them about their week, having to deal with them as an equal, how, how quickly that would subvert the common belief that they were subhuman <laughs> and that they deserved their place. That the actual practice and experience of living into a new kind of wisdom and a new kind of story might shape and change the way they practice their lives. We can believe we're all equal in the eyes of God, but if we, if we dine stratified, what becomes real? What happens when we let these practices seep into our bones? And so in the series, we're going to invite um, a bunch of stories into the room and sit with them together um, and maybe even together create rituals and practices um, and then also lean on some older ones, uh, like communion, like the meal where everyone is equal. And today, um, because I forgot to tell Ashley, um, we now have two communions. <laughs> so for the traditionalists out there, there's Jesus juice and crackers. Um, and then also for every, everyone, we have much more interesting looking cake um, and biscuits and things. Um, but this morning, we are going to take up the invitation of the early church a couple of thousand years ago and practice what isn't so subversive to us, which is a meal that we all eat together as equals. But in part, I'd argue that it's not that subversive to us because people began practicing it a long time ago and it's become a part of us. Um, but yeah, as we do, I'd just love to reflect um, on the way in which eating this meal together, sharing it together, an open table where all belong, where all are the beloved of God, 
might begin to shape the way in which we live our lives. So, yeah, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to eat and drink together. Jesus, as I have sat with your words, um, I've all too often found them offensive, (laughs) Um, difficult to comprehend, unbelievably challenging. But these stories and words have shaped me and have shaped us. I know that it's difficult to become aware of the stories that shape our lives and the things that run in the background. But we ask that you would continue to shape us, that we would be more loving, more kind, more generous, and more like you as we eat and drink together. Amen.